Our Father and our God, we're so grateful for life today. We're thankful for camp meeting. We're thankful for the friendships that we build and maintain and continue at camp meeting. But most of all, Lord, we're thankful for a friendship with you that we can maintain, grow, and continue here at camp meeting. Bless this session as we share together how to discover, encourage, strengthen each other in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is our final Spark presentation for this uh, week here. But today we want to talk about affirming truth. We've been talking about how to avoid losing members, right? We've talked about a lot of different things. And we had the exciting discovery in our first day, for those who may not have been here, that only 5% of people who leave the church leave because of doctrinal differences. So the other 95% of people who, for one reason or another, leave your church, they're leaving for some other reason. Usually, often, it's that they just sort of slip away. They go camping one week, they go to visit grandma another week, and they don't show up for a few weeks. Nobody seems to notice, and so it becomes easier not to come than to come. And so we've talked about how building relationships so that when they are missing a week or two, somebody notices, sends them an email or a text or a phone call or a friendly word. We talked about a handwritten postcard. Whatever we can do to remind them that we noticed. We noticed. Even if you know why they're gone, still you could send them a bulletin and say, hey, here's what happened. We missed you. Wish you could have been there. So we've talked about some of those things. But today we want to talk about affirming truth. We talked yesterday about the gospel, right? How we need to be empowered to build and grow our churches because we have a message to tell to the nations that no one else has, right? A lot of nice churches in your town. A lot of nice churches people can join. Probably friendlier than yours, probably more wealthy than yours, probably have more programs and services than yours can provide. So why would they come to your church? Because we have a message that's unique, that God has commissioned us to understand and then to share, right? The three angels' messages, the gospel in the context of preparing people for Jesus to come. Very different message, very important message. Our job as Seventh-day Adventists is to share that message, right? We have a commission, a job description that no one else has. No one else has the job description that we do. And that is to prepare a people for Jesus' second coming. So now today, in our final session, we're going to talk about affirming truth. How do you help new people? How do we help ourselves? How do we study the Bible? How do we discover truth so that we can rest, trust, in the truths of the Bible. New members will be challenged regarding the new truths they've embraced. Brother said yesterday here that you know, his family didn't understand, couldn't comprehend what he was getting involved with. And so it's a challenge for them. Uh, you've heard this statement, no doubt. Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. And that's really what we want to do in Bible study, is teach people how to search the Word themselves, right? How to discover truth, how to grow 
in Jesus. But of course, they have to find the right information. You can read the Bible and come up with wrong conclusions, especially based on the assumptions that we come to the Bible with, right? We all come with assumptions, but if our assumptions dominate our Bible study, then we can come to wrong conclusions. That's why William Miller, you remember when he studied, he said he put everything aside as much as he could, right? And he just took a Bible and a concordance and he studied and he didn't go past a verse until he felt like he understood what that verse meant. Then he went to the next verse and the next verse. And little by little, of course, it began to just unravel and open up to him. So we want to feed people for a lifetime. So the primary requisite, of course, to understanding the Bible is what? Prayer and the receipt of the Holy Spirit, right? Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. God leads his people in a spiritual sense. You can sing with them if you'd like. But you are, you are getting the air, though, that the rest of us aren't. So that's nice. So here's our first text. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 and 15. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. How many of us have a carnal nature, a sinful nature? Yeah, we all do, don't we? So if we stay in that, we really can't understand spiritual things. Spiritual things come by submission to God, committing our lives to Him, trusting that He will guide us, especially that He'll guide us in the study of His Word. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Verse 15 says, because they are spiritually discerned, but He who is spiritual... He who has the Spirit of God judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. So we need the Holy Spirit. We need to submit to God. We need to commit to God to be able to understand what God's Word has to say to us. So, spirituality, as it relates to the Bible, includes prayerfulness, humility, and consecration. That defines spirituality in the sense that we're using it. Prayerfulness, humility, and consecration. Now here's an important passage, perhaps a key one for us today. Jesus says in John 7, verse 17, if anyone wills, if we want to know his will, God's will, it says he shall know the doctrine. Whether it is from God or whether it is of mine own authority, or whether it is of man, some of your translations will say. So Jesus has promised, I think we can take his word to the bank, don't you? Jesus has promised that if we want to know his will, he'll reveal it to us. He'll lead us in our study. Very important concept. We must want to do his will as we come to Bible study so that he can lead us and direct us and get us to where we need to go. A couple thoughts from Thoughts of the Mount of Blessing. The soul that turns to God for its help, its support, its power, by daily earnest prayer, 
will have noble aspirations, clear perceptions of truth, and of course, duty. What soul is that? The soul that turns where? To God for help. You see, our problem is in Western culture, we've been trained that we can do it. That's why we go to school, why we take training, we get certifications, we do. We can do it. We can do it. We tell our kids that. You can do it. You can do it. It's a good thing to do, by the way. We need education. We need certifications. But sometimes those things can get in our way, can't they? We can rely on those things instead of relying on God, the source of our help. I told you all here that uh, for six years I served in Madagascar one of the 10 poorest countries in the world. And when I came back, people would ask, so why does the church grow there and it doesn't grow here? When we left Michigan in 1989, if I remember correctly, we had 20-some thousand members. What is it now? Does anybody know? 35 maybe? 55? Wonderful. When we came back six years later, the church membership in Michigan was... 100 or 500 more, membership in Madagascar had doubled in the same period of time, setting them side by side, same period of time. Membership doubled there, increased here. But I went to churches there that were nothing but a carport. That's an exaggeration. It wasn't that nice. A lean-to to someone's house, that was their church. A drape blowing in the wind, literally, to give a little privacy from the neighbors. That's where church was held. That's all they had. But they could walk there. And so they could gather their group there and have worship. They wanted to know what God had to say. They didn't have a lot else to rely on. They didn't have a lot of other assurances or insurances. And so they said, God, we need you. We need your help. We can't do it. We can't provide for ourselves. We don't know where tomorrow's meal is going to come from. And so they turn to God for the help and the encouragement that they need. Ezra 7 and verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Have we prepared our heart? Have we prepared our heart And in our churches, have we prepared our heart to seek the law of the Lord? In other words, to seek what God would have us to do and then to do those things. God will lead us if we'll do that. We've got to be serious, right? We've got to really commit to this. God wants to reveal his will to us. But we must prepare our hearts. We must submit our hearts, commit our hearts to him. James 4, 6 But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Or Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Of course, we understand the law in the Bible means more than just the Ten Commandments, right? Law can apply actually to the entire entire writings. So God wants to reveal wonderful things to us from his law, but we need to seek for it. We need to be serious. That's what camp meeting's about, right? We enjoy the friendships and all of that, the social part, but really God wants us to spend more time with him, focus on getting to know him better, 
slowing down from some of the activities that normally occupy our time and energy and understand him and his will. The Great Controversy, page 521, says, Whenever the study of, of the scriptures is entered upon without a prayerful, humble, teachable spirit, the plainest and simplest, as well as the most difficult passages, will be what? Rested, twisted, taken from their true meaning. They'll be given the wrong meaning. So we must come to Bible study with a prayerful spirit, letting God be God letting God lead us in what we should do. So we want to look at three or four principles now of Bible study, and we're going to hope Pastor Bradshaw may help us a little bit on this. So first, our Bible study must be centered on Jesus, right? The whole Bible is really his story, history, his story, the story of Jesus, right? If you read about creation, what are you really reading about? What Jesus did in preparing a world in which we could live. Because the New Testament says he spoke and it was done. So if you're reading about creation, it sounds kind of old and dusty because it happened, we believe, about 6,000 years ago. It's really what Jesus was doing. It's Jesus' activities, even in creation. Talk about Israel, you can talk about David, Solomon, whomever. It's really Jesus' story, what Jesus was doing in people's lives. Of course, there are different terminology. We want to get to know Jesus through this. All Scripture, Jesus says, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. They talk of me. They teach of me. They help you to know me. That's why we come to Scripture. We want to know Him better, right? We want to know Him better. Not just information, as helpful as information may be, and important, but we want to find the person of the Scripture. So principle number one, if we don't find Jesus in the passage, we might have missed something, right? We might not have found quite the right, the right information. The book Steps to Christ says the whole Bible, how much? The whole Bible tells of Christ. The whole Bible tells of Christ from the first record of creation to the closing promise. It's all about him. Talking about the Sabbath, talking about what happens when people die, talking about the second coming. It's all about Jesus, right? He's the center of everything. If it weren't for him, Nothing else makes sense. Nothing else has meaning. Everything is empty. Testimonies for the church. Every true doctrine makes Christ the center. Every true doctrine makes Christ the center. And I think you'll find, and I think Ellen White makes a statement something like this, that every false doctrine focuses on something else. There's something else that's the center. So every true doctrine focuses on Christ. So when people are wanting to argue with you, debate with you on a religious theme, I think you'll find often if you'll bring them back and talk about Jesus 
And how does, let's say, your understanding of whatever the subject is, how does that show Jesus? How does their understanding show Jesus? What kind of Jesus would whatever explanation or doctrine or theory you're coming up with, how does Jesus get reflected in that? What does that say about him, his character, his personality, what he's like? Let's use an example. An eternally burning hell. What would that say about God? How can you say on one hand that God is love, Jesus loves me, this I know, but if in my lifespan of three score and ten, I don't demonstrate that I love him, he's going to destroy me, he's going to punish me forever and ever and ever and ever. Right. So how do you see Jesus in the teaching, the concept, the doctrine, the understanding that you're getting from Scripture? If it isn't consistent with a God of love, compassion, mercy, grace, patience, may not be the right conclusion. There may be some other way to look at that concept uh, in the Bible. Let's go to principle number two. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, we're going to ask Pastor Bradshaw to help us with this one. What kind of inspiration, if all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, what kind of inspiration can we be talking about? It's going to be interesting, isn't it? It would be like Chang and Ng. Yeah, that's it. Don't go far. Uh, so you're asking the difference between what is this word inspiration and thought inspiration? I didn't use those words. Can I, though? It's interesting that uh, even Ellen White writes very clearly that when the Bible was given by God to human beings, God didn't dictate. He didn't give the words. He gave the thoughts and impressed the thoughts upon the people's minds, and they did their very best to express those thoughts that God gave them in in, uh, human words. I'm not sure how much there is to say about this. Uh, That's a fairly simple and straightforward thought. And when we run the risk of saying... um, uh, 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 the Bible must be, every, every last single word was the exact word that was given by God. We can end up tying ourselves up in knots that God simply didn't design or desire. So we want to keep away from that. I, I, perhaps you should keep pushing this forward. One of the problems with that is you can't even have a translation, right? Well, no, of course. And I, I was about to mention that and I backed off. Uh, because then, of course, only this translation can be used. Only that translation is a good one. But I don't want to sound uh, heretical or or as though I'm undermining anyone's faith, but there's no perfect translation of the Bible. There's just not. And you can have your preference. You can prefer the King James Version of the Bible. That's mine. That's the one I like the best. I think it's the most reliable. But there are parts of the King James Version of the Bible that uh, could do with a little help. Um, Fortunately, often when the translators... Often the, the Bibles themselves will help us to see with the King James at least where these supplied words are clearly not inspired but given by the translators. And then, Do they understand what that means? you know, in the King James you'll be reading and sometimes words will be italicized. There might be only one or two words that aren't italicized. 
That's because the, the original language didn't provide uh, enough nuance or enough information for them to write an entire sentence or an entire verse or something with every word. So they've, they've got the thoughts and then added the words that they feel based on the rest of the scriptures work best to fatten that up or fill that out. So there are times that the translators sort of had to help a little bit and add some more words. Uh, and so we wouldn't want to believe that the Bible is word-inspired. We would want to believe, as in the Protestant tradition, that the Bible is thought-inspired. Because if it was word-inspired, surely then the only really reliable Bible would be the original scriptures as written down by the prophets. Anything translated would have to be problematic, and that's problematic. That is what happens with the Koran, right? Yes. Technically, if you're going to memorize or teach the Koran, you need to be in the original language. That's correct. That becomes a problem. So anything translated for your Muslim friends, remember you can remind them of that. You're only reading probably a translation, so you're not getting the official inspired document. What do mm. we mean when we say scripture is profitable? A good question. You want to take this back? No, you're doing fine. Am I? <laughs> what do we mean when we say Scripture is profitable? Say again? You gain something. You said it's helpful. Somebody else said beneficial. I think we can agree with that. Would you like to elaborate on that? Is it all profitable? How about the begats? What do you do with that? How no, is that profitable? It's all profitable. You know something about the Bible, and I was talking with my family about this whenever we were driving up here. Um, you, you read these, you know, these, no, actually, you probably don't. You probably see that chapter and go, oh, oh. go to the next one, uh, next one, uh, oh, this is where it starts getting interesting. What's really interesting about the Bible is the Bible references more actual place names in about the first 10 or 15 chapters than the Quran mentions in the entire Quran. And what that means is that God really sort of puts himself out there and, and, and puts his reputation on the line. The Bible is anchored in time and place, and it's connected to real individuals who lived in real places and, 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 and existed within a, a real context. So when the Bible says this one beget, this one beget, this one beget, this one beget, this one, it's a little hard to see how that benefits you and me today, but when the Bible was given, Oh, wow, this was a living, breathing document that enabled people to be able to even translate their, uh, uh, trace their genealogy and so forth. So although it might not all seem entirely beneficial to us, even the begats validate the word of God. Why would God go to that trouble? Uh, and you don't look at the begats and say, oh, that, that one wasn't in the, in the lineage. All of those individuals belong. So the Bible is written in such a way that it, 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 it explains to us or reveals to its, itself to us as being reliable and inspired and trustworthy and truly given by God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so we see within the Scripture itself how profitable it actually is. Don't hesitate if you have a question. Amen. All right, Second Peter. We like this one. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were moved, uh, the Spirit moved them, and then they spoke. And so we understand the Bible was given by God. It's what, it's, it, we have no, absolutely no doubt about the fact of its, its divine origin. 
Back to the type of inspiration, Ellen White talks about how generally she was given visions, right? She saw things, and then she wrote a description of what she saw. And sometimes she would struggle with a word, and God would provide the word. So do you suppose that's what happened with the scriptural writers as well? Yeah, maybe. You know, the Holy Spirit gave them, and John, the revelator, we know a lot of that was visions and dreams, right? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily did God tell him every word that should be written down there, but he wrote down what the Holy Spirit impressed him to write. Correct. All inspired. Holy men speak. All right. We got that. Number three. This is an important point. The Bible must be interpreted according to the analogy, if you like, or the explanation of the rest of the scriptures. Now, I, I do want to comment here. We need to be careful, actually, where else we go in the Bible to get the understanding for the Bible. Because you can play fast and loose with the Bible, and we don't want to do that. A verse a text is best understood in its context. And the explanation for a verse or a word or a passage should be clear. We shouldn't stretch and reach. You can take a Bible verse and just bend it almost to breaking point, stretching too far. Oh, a woman in Scripture represents a church, and so here are two women walking down the road, and so here we have two churches. You know, it's just a little bit of a stretch, and you want to be careful not to go there. And it happens, and it happens with alarming frequency, and people who one might expect to otherwise be responsible treat the Bible sometimes irresponsibly. But if we interpret the Bible according to the Bible, if we let the Bible be the guide for the Bible, we're going to be okay. When John wrote Revelation, almost three-quarters of those verses contain, contain quotes from or allusions to the Old Testament Scriptures. So really, while it's a New Testament book, the book of Revelation can't be understood without the Old Testament, providing the framework and the imagery and the keys to unlock some of the passages in the book of Revelation. So the, the, the best way to understand a verse, look at it in its context. How does that same Bible writer express those thoughts or use those words in other contexts and other chapters and other passages? Sometimes you want to back up a chapter or go forward a chapter. Sometimes you might want to go to another book and say, ah, the Apostle Paul, when talking about this over here, we find him talking about the same thing over here, and this provides greater understanding for what it is that he is saying. But please be responsible, and you don't want to read a, a verse in the New Testament and say, well, I find that same word back here in the book of Proverbs, and back here the word, you know, it's a different language, it's a different, it was, it's a different millennium almost, you know, different writer might have been written on a different continent. Um, we want to be a little bit careful about that. But if we stay within uh, the, the interpretation rules uh, that we uh, hang on to as a church and, and believe in, uh, we're going to be okay. You don't want to go falling off any theological cliffs unnecessarily. So our next point is the Bible correctly in understood does not contradict itself. How about that one? Some verses seem so opposite of other verses. What do you do 
When one gospel writer says two demoniacs came approaching Jesus, and another, and another passage telling exactly the same story says it was one demoniac. It's a contradiction, huh? What do you do about that? Get all bent out of shape. You could. The point is demoniacs or demoniac. Doesn't matter. Doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make a difference. The point is the story was told by two different people who wrote on two different scrolls in two different towns at two different times. By the way, if you look at this, and people have written about this, human memory is a very, very faulty thing. That's why you can have two people witness the same accident, and it was a blue pickup on the one hand and a red car on the other. And they were both there watching it. It's just what happens. I'm not saying the Bible writers were faulty. I'm simply saying that for one to say one and for the other to say two, it's not a great surprise, but it doesn't change the essence of the Bible story. And the Bible story is that Christ is more powerful than the devil, and Jesus is able to cast demons out, and the Prince of Light has power over the kingdom of darkness. That's the point. That's the point. Whether it's one or two, and you don't want to get bogged down by petty discussions and silly little arguments and so forth that some people might have about the Bible. But the Bible does not contradict itself. It just doesn't. And that's why you can read... And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever and ever. And over here you read, uh, and, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in Malachi. It's not a contradiction. Uh, it simply means that we've got to study the Bible and find out what the Bible writer was on about. You know, if, if, you, if you wrote an email that I sent, you might, I'm not saying you would, but you might find where I say, Everyone in Michigan is crazy. Um, <laughs> we're leaving. No? We're leaving. Everyone in Michigan is crazy. Everyone. Everyone in Michigan is crazy about Michigan. I was talking to my son about this earlier. We were, we were trying to figure out which state is the most, um, I don't mean patriotic, crazy. but the, most, the craziest about their own state. And we figured that Michigan is way up there, at least in the top five, behind Texas. Might as well be another nation, Texas. You know, that's so Texas-centric. But you see what I mean? If you were just to hear a part of something, and so you read forever and ever, and, and, and you understand this already, but we need to understand that sometimes the Bible writers were expressing things using idioms, using figures of speech, using examples that were well-known in, in their day. Uh, there's not only a lingua... Uh, um, a theological context, there's a linguistic context, there's a cultural context, there's an historical context. And no, you don't have to be a scholar to figure all this out. You just got to be wise enough to know that if you were reading something written a uh, hundred years ago, you'd say, oh, you got to keep in mind this was written a hundred years ago. And it's true about the Bible. That's not a, a black mark against the Bible. There's no disrespect intended. But we certainly must admit that these words were written by people who lived in different places at a different time and approached life differently than we do. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I mean, I love Olin. I really. I'll greet him with a holy handshake. That's what I do. But you've been to Europe. My, my, my wife was just so... My wife was just so interesting. She came to New Zealand and she met my brother. The first thing he did was kiss her. Grabbed her hand and, 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 and kissed her on the cheek. And she thought, oh, that's interesting. And 
And then she met uh, my, one of my close friends. He did the same thing. No, no, it's, it's, they're not French, these people. You know, the French will kiss you three or four times, but it's different context, different, different culture, different way of doing things. And so the, the, the Bible says certain things, and while uh, you've got to be careful that you're not ignoring a command of God, but when Paul is simple, simply uh, uh, um, emphasizing a culturally normative behavior, I don't think he means you better start kissing everyone you see or else you're in trouble with God. So we interpret the Bible according to itself, being careful that we don't stretch it too far or let things drop that shouldn't drop. What have we got next? Very good. We were looking at a couple passages here. Um, precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line. By the way, it is written as a new television program called Line Upon Line. You will like this. Line Upon Line, here a little and there a little, my brother. I never turned it off. Oh, no, 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 no. You thought that when I was saying Michiganders were crazy, I turned the microphone off so that... <laughs> So that I would hide the evidence. No, no. No, I'm not doing that. I just changed pockets. That's all I did. Is that the line upon line? Yeah, line upon line. In fact, if you go to itiswritten.tv, which is our channel, and go down to line upon line and click there, there's about 20 programs up already. We just filmed four a few days ago. It's our Bible Q&A program. It's, it's helpful. It's good. Oh, yeah, you want to get that. Most of them got it yesterday. Yeah, amen. But the word of God, or the word of the Lord, was to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. And that's why we can look at a passage like 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. I would rather be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. And we ought not bend and twist that out of shape. We ought not. if Because we're, we're, we're looking at that in its context. We're reading what it says and we are comparing. It's interesting, isn't it, that people will say at funerals, Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which the Bible doesn't say. And just a few chapters previous, uh, writing to exactly the same group of people, Paul said that the dead sleep until the resurrection. So he's not going to say one thing here and contradict himself there. This hits a couple. Doesn't contradict himself and you want to interpret the Bible according to the Bible. When you do that, you're far safer than when you don't. And, and let me say this. You know something? Um, I don't think there's a church in the world that knows more about the Bible than we do. I think it's true. And I mean has more Bible truth. I don't mean that arrogantly. I just believe it. If there's another church that has more Bible truth than the Adventist church, please tell me about it because then I would like to leave ours and join that one. Really? Uh, I, I think I would. Uh, but I, that's really only an hypothetical. It's not an actual no one should be so welded to their theological arguments that they're not prepared to learn a little more. Now, unfortunately, that's used often subversively. Let me tell you about the Trinity. Let me tell you about how whoever has corrupted the church. I don't mean that. We've arrived at established positions that aren't up for grabs. Uh, we may learn more, however, that will help us have a better understanding of what we already know. And it might be that both you and I believe something that's not quite right. Now, I don't mean about the state of the dead or the Sabbath or the second coming of the sanctuary. I don't mean that. But maybe there's something in the Bible that, that, that we don't really understand. Let's not close our minds off to the idea that there's nothing left for us to learn. 
that we can't sharpen our sword just a little bit more. We should always be learners. It was the Lutherans and people like them that just decided to stop where Luther and people like them stopped, and they essentially refused to grow in their understanding of the Bible. I'd like to mention my stepfather, who died about 99, and in Sabbath school class, just a couple of years before that, I suppose he was around 97 or so, we'd had a big discussion on some point, and I was trying to remember what it was to say, but I can't. But that's not the point here. He, we discussed it, he would say what he had always thought, we discussed more, I think we came back a different Sabbath and discussed that one some more, and he said, I've learned something. That's right. At 98 years old, you yep. learned something as we discussed. And That's right. That happened more than once during those years just before he died, and we were all so impressed. Sure, sure. It's a good lesson to learn. We should all be, we should all be lifelong learners of the Bible, prepared always to, to grow in our understanding of whatever a subject might be. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, oh, oh, I thought we were done. Here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. So we take these verses to mean that we study the Bible here a little, there a little, taking as much biblical evidence as we possibly can to understand uh, a certain subject. Early writings, page 221, I saw that the Word of God as a whole is a perfect chain, one portion linking into and explaining another. Interesting, if you, if you ever read through the Bible, and I kind of sort of do that on a continual basis, uh, I'm all the way up to uh, Exodus chapter uh, 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 or something now, um, you read through the Old Testament in particular and you say, oh, I recognize that. That's in the book of Revelation, you know. I recognize that. That was quoted by Jesus or quoted by Paul. And so in many ways, the Bible sort of doubles back around and reaches back and reaches forward. And it is a chain, one portion linking into and explaining another. Particularly, as you know, the Bible, a lot of it is prophetic. Isaiah wrote pointing towards Jesus and, and Daniel wrote pointing towards Revelation. She got that one right. Scripture is explained by Scripture. Now, question for you. Don't you think you have to be a little bit careful when you say Ellen White says? Yes. Ellen White says. Well, that's, that's the primary point, but I have an equal primary point as well. You might be sharing the Bible with somebody who's not a Seventh-day Adventist. Your Ellen White says isn't going to be helpful. It'll be damaging. And by the way, we ought to be able to do ever so slightly better than Ellen White says. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I came into the church. I was led into the church by the book, The Great Controversy. But we need to understand why we believe from the Bible. If you can support it with the spirit of prophecy, that's great. I'm not down on that at all. I'm, I'm in with that. But um, we are students of the Bible, and Scripture is explained by Scripture. There's no... There's, there's, there's something missing when we believe what we believe because I read this in Patriarchs and Prophets. You understand? So again, read the red books. Read them. The problem is they're the unread books these days, not the red books. So read them. Do. But let's remember we are Bible students and we ought to know what we believe from the Word of God. Well, given us a comparison. Yeah, Matthew 27, 37. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. You find the same in Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. So again and again, you see the same points reiterated in different places uh, throughout the Bible. 
And yet each one is slightly different. Yeah, that's correct. So you could make a sentence that says... Oh, by the way, I had somebody approach me in Melbourne, Australia, after, my, after the first sermon in my series, I was preaching in two locations, and at this location, a guy came straight up to me. He was the first there to get me before I'd really stepped off the platform. And, uh, and his thing was the crucifixion. Wednesday crucifixion, because Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights. Did Jesus say that he'd be in the grave for three days and three nights? Yeah, he really did. He said, I'll give you a sign, the sign of Jonah, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. So he said it. But what else did he say? He said, the third day. Now, the third day, if you please, is, is, could be 48 hours and one second later, right? Because now we've entered into the third day. It also says, after three days. Well, what's that? Three months is after three days. So now we've got Jesus in the grave for three months or a year or 27 years after three days. So you just want to be really honest. I, I tell you what, Adventism, Adventism isn't really the faith for people who want to wow other people with their fancy interpretations of the Bible. Whenever I, whenever I came into a new church, I would tell the congregation, if you hear me say anything you've never heard said before, that's evidence that there's something wrong with either me or you, one or the other. My job is just to tell people the old, old story. That's all. I'm not going to go to Daniel and find something no one's ever seen before. I'm not going to say, you know, the church, yeah, but, but listen to this. We tell, we share the old, old story, the faith once delivered to the saints. We just, I mean, we're kind of boring, really. We Adventist preachers don't say amen to that because that may be, <laughs> that may be misinterpreted. But it's not our job to be new and exciting and innovative and, and super creative and have people, oh, wow, what a thinker. I'm not saying we shouldn't think, that we shouldn't explore, that we shouldn't dig. I don't mean that. But all we're here to do is tell people what the Bible says. That's all. That's all. So you don't, you don't want to be that person who says, oh, I know the church says this, but. You want to be really careful of that. And people who bark up the tree about a Wednesday crucifixion, if you just look at line upon line, here a little, there a little, and cobble together all that the Bible says on a subject, you know, you're going to find, yeah, sorry, we're just kind of boring. Died on Friday, rose on Sunday, nothing really to add to that. My apologies. But it's better that way. We want to be biblical. Biblical. By comparing that, we can ascertain that the complete title on the cross was, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Or we can uh, deduce that or infer that at least. And principle number four, we mentioned this a little bit before, the Bible must be understood in its context. That's very important. Why do we dive on to the next one? Is there a next one right there? Yeah, look at this. Oh, oh, oh. I'm sorry. I thought it might have... Um, I thought there might have been a little more to it than that. Understand the Bible in its context. It's really, really important. Uh, if you're wrestling with a passage and trying to understand what it means, what does it mean here? Not what if I take this phrase and lift it out and stretch it and bend it and... Turn it inside out. Uh, 
I might have said before, a text without a context is a pretext. If I didn't, then you've heard it undoubtedly. See, nothing new under the Adventist sun. Uh, but that is really, really important. You know something? This business about the devotional life. Let me just put that back up to, to highlight that. It's important that we experience this and encourage others to experience this. Every now and then you're going to read another study about why kids leave the church. You read another study and another one and another one and there's someone studying it right now and then there'll be another book. There's probably one in the ABC. So if it's in the ABC, it's good. But I'll tell you why they leave the church. Let's just make it real simple. Or let me put it this way. No child ever left the church who was having a deep and meaningful devotional life. They don't leave. Uh-oh. Uh, uh. Those who leave under those circumstances, it's very rare. Maybe someone's having a deep devotional life, but they just became so disappointed with somebody or there was a trauma of some kind. People who have a meaningful devotional life don't leave. And if you were to read the Bible, you would read about Jesus who prayed all night. If you were to read the Spirit of Prophecy, you would read where she says we need to pray more. Uh, I don't know a single person that I could accuse of praying too much. Few of us do. If we really believed in prayer, we'd pray. And we'd shift our schedules around to take time to pray. Uh, I may mention this over the next couple of nights, but I recall being in a certain place and the men were getting together, a few of these men, and they were uh, having a group and they were deciding that they needed to be men of prayer, prayer and Bible study. And so at the end of their meeting that they invited me to, they said, so how are you doing? And guys, yep, yep, five minutes this morning. Good. You? I wanted to raise my hand and say, come back, come back. Five minutes? Five minutes? Now, if, if, if there was a death in the family or I understand five minutes, but if, if five minutes, once you've said uh, good morning, God, half your time is up. What, what are you going to do, huh? There is, a, there is one of a half. These are two minutes. Oh, no, there's even one that gives. There's even, no, it's a one minute devotion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but. Be rude, but it's not. And like you said, tell them. And we get into these little spits and arguments sometimes uh. for that reason. I think it's more important sometimes to give them a little teaser where they want to dive into it to go, I'm interested and I want to find out yeah, that, that, that's, that's not, we're not saying to people, hey, if you want to have a devotional time, watch this for 60 seconds and then go on with your day. Um, a, a five, a, think, about, think about what we're doing with our prayer time. If prayer is where we connect with God, I mean, you're going to spend more time in the drive-thru at Taco Bell than you spend in the presence of God in prayer. Think about that, you know. 
you're going to spend more time loading the dishwasher than you spend talking to God. There's, there's something really wrong about that. And if, and if my people pray, um, if, I mean, imagine that, if, God didn't even start that verse with, a, with the word when. When my people pray, so, well, they might and they might not. You know, I'm not really controlling this. It's on them. Can you imagine what the church and the world would be like if people came to God and really spent time with God? So, and, and prayer isn't a, a club that we beat God into submission with. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. And gets us on the same frequency as God. When I was a kid growing up, we had in our kitchen uh, a radio. Uh, it was the oddest looking radio I ever saw. But, you know, it was one of these real old-fashioned ones. You had to actually turn the dial. <laughs> and there was a needle on it that went along and you got to the radio station. And uh, our radio station was 1300 1ZH, but it was really 1296 and uh, you knew if you were at 1293 or 1297 or 1299, how come? How did you know? It's kind of crackly, right? Some of you young ones don't remember this. <laughs> Even your digital radios all your life. But when you're getting close to the radio station, it, would, it, it, it was actually annoying. You really wanted to get on the radio station. And a lot of us, we're not spending enough time with God and we're not hearing a clear signal from God. It's crackly. There's a lot of static. And frankly, it can be a bit annoying until you get on the right frequency with God. And that's what prayer does. It connects your mind and your heart with the heart of God. If we are encouraging people who are new in the church, one of the very best things we can do is encourage them to read the Bible and pray. Read the Bible and pray. You will shut the back door like nothing else. I recall being in a church and uh, knowing full well that the majority of Seventh-day Adventists are not really reading their Bible like they should. Scary thought. And uh, I decided that I would give my congregation two or three or four chapters a day to read. Two, three, four, I forget. And on my weekly email to the church members, I would include these, and then we would print the Bible reading verses uh, chapters out for the month. It wasn't read the whole Bible because I didn't want anybody getting bogged down with the begats and deciding to give it away. So it was the parts of the Bible that really speak to the heart. Oh, it all speaks to the heart. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, so I got an email from one of the church members. Pastor, what do you think this verse means? And I, and I wrote back, being so wise, you know, I said, I think it means what, it's, what it says. I think it means what it says it means. Thank you, Pastor. That was helpful. <laughs> Then after a while, the question became, what do you think Ellen White means when she says this? And it was from, you know, patriarchs of prophets, of prophets and kings, of the desire of ages. And I'd write back and give my little answer. And then after a while, it was, what do you think this obscure theological concept is that I'm wrestling with? Here's what had happened. This was a fellow who used to come to church once every three weeks. He lived about 50 miles away. There was a church there once. It got flooded out one too many times, so they closed it. And now he would... Where you been? Oh, you know, the price of gas is so high, Pastor, and you know, it's such a long way. Suddenly, this guy's in church every week. And it's him who's sending me these questions. What happened was he started reading his Bible, changed his life. He was doing the Bible readings, and he realized this isn't enough. So I shall read the Conflict of the Ages series. He got through that, and then he said, what do I do now? He decided he would read the Bible commentary. 
from, from volume one to volume whatever it is. Read the whole thing. So his questions were changing over time, you know. It's quite amazing what happened. He started to read the Bible. And I remember my last Sabbath there. He's in the foyer saying, okay, those of you who are coming on our walk this afternoon, if you've got your lunch, bring it. You can follow this guy. We're going to drive out. We'll drive together. He just assumed a leadership position in the church. Changed his life because he read the Bible. Adventism, Christianity, Adventism is about people coming to God individually and feeding on the Word of God and spending time with God. Uh, we don't do what we do because the pastor directs us to or because the general conference president uh, uh, signed his name to some fiat of some kind. That's not who we are. We're a group of individuals having a personal relationship with God and our common faith draws us together. One thing that my wife has done with my place with Jesus and this is profoundly simple and profoundly important, is put together a Bible reading plan for kids. It's called Journey Through the Bible. There's even an achievement trail that goes with it so that as children are doing their Bible readings, they can put a little sticker on the trail and, 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 and oh, that might be with the Bible studies, as a matter of fact. There's, uh, there are stickers um, for completing a month's Bible readings, and by the time the year is gone, the kid will have all 12 stickers. It's fabulous. My place with Jesus, dot whatever it is, and journey through the Bible. I think unless you're already doing it in Sabbath school, every Sabbath school class should have it. Every Sabbath school teacher should be sharing it. We've got adults, people, uh, very senior people who are following this. The best thing you can do is connect a child or an adult with God through the Word of God and prayer. Let's see if we can bring this all the way around. We're talking about closing the back door. Do you have any questions uh, about anything we've discussed or maybe even something we haven't discussed? when it comes to winning people and keeping them in the church. Let me share a story with you. So I have a friend, and he was a hippie, and he, and he saw a sign advertising an evangelistic series, and he went to the meetings, and there weren't many people there, but they said, how did you hear about the meetings? And he said, I saw the billboard. And they said, the billboard? Yeah, the billboard down on Main Street. Ethel, is there a billboard on Main Street advertising the meetings? No, there's not. So he saw the billboard that didn't exist. And he read the billboard and came to the evangelistic meeting and he was baptized. And he was baptized into a church filled with people who were so different from him it wasn't funny. Young guy, long hair, hippie kind of a guy, alternative lifestyle sort of a fellow. I mean, not that alternative, but uh, sort of alternative. And that first Sabbath, an elderly couple said, do you have any lunch plans today? And he said, no, I don't. And they said, well, would you come home and have lunch with us? And he said, oh, I'd be happy to. And that was a happy time. And the next week, they said to him, would you like to come and have lunch with us again? We'd like that. And they said, oh, he said, sure, I'll come and have lunch. And the third week, they just said, we've got lunch prepared for you and the table is already set, so you'll be coming home with us, right? Yes, I will. You think he's in the church today? Author, evangelist, pastor, public speaker. And that's because he went to church and someone didn't want him to slip out the back door, and they stepped forward and said, we'll take ownership of the situation. I don't think this was the couple that anyone at, on the church board would have said, oh, the bakers, they're the ones. They would have said, oh, too old, and he's too young. But what it takes really is love and concern and commitment and care. That's what it is. I came into the church, and, uh, uh, you know, well, I, can't, I looked like the last thing ever that would have come into the church. And people just loved me. They just, 
That's right. I called the operator and asked for the, for the phone number for the Seventh-day Adventist Cathedral in London. Because <laughs> I had questions, and I wasn't going to mince around with a priest. I wanted to talk to a bishop or an archbishop. <laughs> I had serious questions. So I came into the church, and I was just loved into the church. It's hard for a person to leave. As, as Olin said, 95% of those who leave don't leave over theology. So if we want, I'll tell you another thing too. A couple of young ladies came to the church where I was on the pastoral staff one day. They were dressed in black, black, black makeup and black nail polish and black, you know, these goths. Goths kind of went out of fashion a few years ago. What a, what a pity. <laughs> but the lady at the door said, nah, you can't come in. You can't come like that. No, 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 no. You got to get, you got to get changed. And I heard about this and I said, I said, who, what? This is some church girl brought her friend. And I said, who was it who said that? And no one would tell me. I said, we will visit her and help her to understand, no, you don't. In fact, our church service was broadcast live on television in our town, which is a mistake. Live on television. And I spoke to the congregation while on TV live and said, we don't do this. And I said, I will find out who you are. And when I do, I will come and see you. Why is it that we put up with people in our churches who are mean and who frighten off new, new visitors? At Evangelistic Series, I'll see someone making a beeline for a guest and I'll walk up to the guy and go, hey, Larry, I need to talk with you. Physically grab him and physically move him. Well, what do you need to talk with me about, Pastor? Oh, nothing really, just anything to keep you away from that person. <laughs> How come we'll disfellowship people for disunity and we'll disfellowship? I mean, we used to. I don't know when the last person ever was disfellowshipped. We'll disfellowship them for, I don't know, what does it take these days? Mass murder? I don't know. Um, <laughs> not that I'm advocating draconian measures in the church. But we'll put up with somebody who chases away 5, 10, 15 people over the course of a few years, and we'll just say, oh, that's old Bert. He's just a little rough around the edges. No, Bert needs to be sat down with and told, no, no, never, never, uh, uh, uh. And if that happens again, Bert, you're gone. You've got to protect the little ones. You've got to protect them. Uh, uh, we lock people up for child abuse. Rightly so. And yet child abuse is practiced in the church all the time by grumpy, unkind, unchristian, unadventist people who run people off. You want to sh- lock the back door tight? Then muzzle some of these Rottweilers that we have in the church and protect people from them. And I'm sure that's not here in Michigan. That's in Ohio where that happens. You know. Wait, wait, wait. I'm from Ohio. Oh, well, there you go. You should know. You should know. You should know. You must... You're, you're probably from the good part. So you're the problem, is that it? You're from, you're from the good part of Ohio. That's right. Yes, I am. My son, my son, that's all right, they can take it. My, my son lives in Ohio right now, so it's, it's all fine. We, we, have friends in, we have friends in Ohio. We had, fr- we had friends in Ohio. We had friends there. So do you have any questions, quick? And, and uh, we've got to all half past, right? We've got to wrap it up. If you have any questions, let us know. Yep, go right ahead. So you're talking about the Lord that come in and sabotage the new converts, right? Yep, some come in and sabotage the new converts. 
Yep. Yeah. That's the way to do it. It's unfortunate to come to that, but that's what we have to do. After several conversations and several times of pleading with this gentleman, they ask him, just don't come back. And that's, that's appropriate. We want to shut the back door. We can't bring people, we can't bring people in and have them you know, shot at by church members. We just can't. And I don't care what they smell like or look like. I don't care what their sexual orientation is. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to get more of that. You're going to get more of that. And, and we, I don't mean to talk forever about this, and so I won't. But we've got to understand, A, we love people. We love them. Love them. I don't care which way they lean. Love them. And, and, and you know, that's the very first. I'm not going to step two, three, four, five, and ten. But we, we, we've got to love people, welcome people, let them know they're valued, study, them and study with them in the Word of God, uh, show we care, look out for them, send a card, make a phone call. And I'll tell you this, get them busy doing the work of God. A SALT student, a SALT graduate I was talking to her just the other night, told me about it. She got a card. The church sent out cards. They just couldn't find this woman, couldn't find this woman found the woman and she was at home with her boyfriend and she went there and it was hostile. The boyfriend was hostile. So they sat in the Bible worker's car and studied the Bible together. This happened a couple of times. The second time the boyfriend came outside and stood on the front step and just stared at the car. Yeah, he was, he was a character and not a good one. Uh, and then he kicked her out because she was studying the Bible. She came home and all her stuff was all over the front yard and on the porch and whatever. And then the Bible worker lost her, lost track of her, couldn't find her. And she was praying, Lord, lead me to her, lead me to her, lead me to her. She felt impressed a few months later to go back to that home and she'd moved back in. The abuse started again. She would appear bruised and, and clearly she was getting badly treated. Um, so the poor lady's sister and the Bible worker said, you've got to move out. We've got a place for you. So they moved her out. The Bible worker said, you'd like to study the Bible? Yes. She studied the Bible and she finally found a man that she could love, someone who loved her. His name was Jesus. And she was baptized. It's really interesting. You know, the gospel elevates people. She was baptized. And what's she doing? She is involved right away in ministry in the church, sharing her faith, active in church. She's got things to do. Uh, She had used methamphetamines for years. And so her teeth were, were lousy. There's a dentist in the church who started replacing her teeth for her. You can imagine, out of an abusive situation, her life is turning around. But what's keeping her in the church? The love of others and ministry. The best thing we can do for people who come into the church is give them something to do. I don't just mean fold the communion tablecloths, but give them something to do in reaching others and sharing their faith and being an active, integral part of the church. People don't leave when they're connected to God and they're connected to the church and they know they're loved. They don't leave. We've been in places where they have, um, where were we? I've got to think about this. We were conducting meetings and they said, we typically have a recidivism rate of X percent in the conference, but we are going to implement these principles and we're going to really work on it. And after six months or a year, the recidivism rate was, I mean, they were up in the 90% retention because they tried. Mm-hmm. They tried. So, 
Oh, I don't either. No, no I didn't no, say put them on a board. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put them on the board. No, no, no. The Bible even talks about not making a novice an elder and so forth. Don't rush them. Just get them involved. They don't have to be on the board. They know it's good for them. No, no, no. Don't need, no. But give them something to do. And the other thing, too, is this is the flip side is you can get someone who's too green and put too much on them and they drown. And, and I've seen people leave because of that. Someone here and someone here. Oh, I was just going to tell you that's what my church did. I've never been since this year, but they started me off with Bible studies and care and lives to church. And this this weekend, this Sabbath weekend, I get to do the offering, prayer, and you know, the little speech again. Amen. I don't know exactly what, but I get to do it. Amen. They started me out with the children's story. That's right. Yeah, there you go. Thank God you're willing to serve. Amen. God bless you. You know what? Before long, you'll be conducting the evangelistic series. Let's be quick. I know we've got to wind up, but we've got a couple of comments. You know what my pastor said? He said, when are you going to preach? That's it? That's a good pastor. So when are you going to preach? You better, you better have an answer for that question. Yes. We had meetings uh, a couple of months ago, and I, when I gave an invitation to this one fellow, I went to buy some flowers there, and there was going to be a concert. And then he says, oh, of course, I love music. That's right. Said, well, look at the address. We want you to come. And he, and he says, but I'm a homosexual. I mean, he just came yeah. right up. He said, I am a homosexual. And I yeah. said, so what? But then I thought, what is the church going yeah, we, yeah, we should never have to worry about that, but we do. And, yeah. and there, are, there are some, some genuine considerations. Of course he has. He expects he expects Christians to be harsh and judgmental. And, and of, of listen, of course it's of course it's delicate. But but the the fact of the matter is homosexual or or proud. Pride is an abomination. But we don't say, "Oh, you proud people, get out of here." So 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 love just love them. You know, no one's going to come to faith in Jesus simply because we condemn them, condemn them and tell them what horrible lifestyle they're leading. And, and again, this is only becoming more popular and the church is going to have to figure out how to relate to this issue in love and in righteousness. I didn't tell you how, I'm just saying that we're going to have to figure out how. I was going to um, touch on what you said. We, yes, I believe in evangelism and people should come Amen. But it's a very delicate situation with all the other members when um, homosexual family and gay family and so on. And these are God's children. Yes, they are. And I'm so happy when I see some of them change their life around. Amen. And I think as a church, we should fast and pray in anguish. Yeah. So, so that they can come in, but don't, come, don't do their lifestyle that they used to. Leave it behind. Bury it underneath the water. Yeah. Well, they'll get to that. They'll get to that. They'll get to that. They're not going to come on day one and say, oh, you know what? I'm going to change right away. But they'll come. And you know, we're going down a road here, aren't we? It's a very delicate situation with the church members. But might I say, why should it be? They're not going to run to the Sabbath school class and attack the children. They're not going to go to the men's room and, and, and wait and, as predators. They're just not. You know, it's just like the, 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 the people who come to church with drinking problems aren't waiting for communion and saying, well, what, let's use this instead. No, they're not doing that. 
the thief in church isn't hiding in the deacon's room to steal the offering, you know? So if, if you love someone, it doesn't mean we sanction a lifestyle. It doesn't mean suddenly we have to close the church school. We don't need to be hysterical, but we can be Christian. And again, we're not covering all the bases here. We're simply saying we've got to figure out how to love all of God's children. Let the church be a safe place for everyone. I tell you what, I think Seventh-day Adventists are, are pretty good. I really do. Pretty good. I know that's a ringing endorsement. I was at a church one day, and you could only call it a conservative church. It's a conservative church. And, uh, and there's a very tall lady with very big hands and enormous feet. And her dress is ill-fitting. And then I realized that Henrietta was actually Henry. The church members knew this. this is, we're going back 10 years before it was fashionable. The church members knew that. No one minded. No one made a stink about it. No one had a secret meeting saying, what are we going to do with Henrietta? Henrietta was just loved, probably still being loved to this day. So we just got to figure out again, again, again. I'm not, please don't stretch my remarks too far. Don't say the it is written guy saying we've got to turn into whatever. No, we, we, we need as a church, as, as, in, as congregations and as believers, to figure out how to love everybody and how to make church a safe place for everybody. And because if we don't love them, they never change. Because if we're unloving, the reason they don't change is because they're scared that if they do, they'll turn into what we are. And no one wants to look at, the, at an unloving Adventist and say, oh my goodness, I'm going to be like that. No one wants to be like that. Were you going to say something? Was it you? Was not? Maybe you were acting. Give us a special blessing and let us go. All right, we're done. You have a meeting in here? Oh, thank the Lord. All right. We shall pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you that you give us... Um, a little work to do with Jesus and soul winning. And we love the church and we're thankful for it. It's a wonderful church. And we are thankful that you bring people to the church. We're so grateful for the work of our pastors and Bible workers, administrators, and for church members who share their faith and invite people at the flower shop to the musical concert and all of that. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us grace to really care about the new ones to really love your children and to shut that back door and nail it shut, and bolt it shut so that it's just about impossible for people once they come to the foot of the cross to drain out the back door like water down a, out of a sink. Give us grace to be your hands and feet, to love as you love and to let people know they're loved by you. Lord bless your church. We are sailing into troubled waters now. It seems to be one thing after another. And one heresy after another, and one little group drawing people away after another. You allow these things to shake us so that we will get into the Bible and learn what we believe and know who we believe in. So protect your church and protect us. And Lord, please, when someone comes in, keep them. Never let them go. Grow your church all the way to the to all the way until your kingdom comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.